We're talking about extreme situations that call for extreme courage. And if there ever was a time for us to be having these conversations, uh, I think it is now. I was, I kind of mentioned it a minute ago, but um, to be honest with you and, and, and just gut level here, I struggle. I, I've tried to now avoid Facebook because I struggle reading uh, my Facebook feed. I struggle reading the, the websites of major news outlets because to be honest with you, when I read a lot of the things that are going on in our world right now, I get a little bit of a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. And, and it, it really can, can ruin my day to see the trajectory of where things are going in our world. I mean, it's not just, by the way, uh, sometimes our minds immediately go to politically where we are. We say, well, we're headed in a bad direction politically. Let me just say, we're headed in a bad direction in a lot of areas in our world today. I mean, the average marriage is not in very good shape. The average family is not in very good shape. Financially in this world, we tend to not be in very good shape, whether we're talking about as a country or as individuals. Um, and so here's the deal. If there ever was a time for us to confront the fact that the reality of living within the average is not looking too good, it's now. And we need to determine what we're going to do to make an impact in our world. Here's what I believe. I believe that God has called us to be a generation of difference makers, and not just to be a generation of difference makers, but I believe God has called us to raise a generation of difference makers, because if we don't do that, things are headed in a very bad direction. We need to raise and be a generation of people who are going to stand in the gap and who are going to make a difference for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're talking about uh, in this series. Last week, we introduced you uh, to some characters from the Bible, the Old Testament. We're talking about Daniel and three of his friends. Now, if you grew up in traditional church like I did, uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, you probably know these guys by the name Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As a matter of fact, if you were like me and you grew up in, in Sunday school and traditional church, you can probably remember the flannel graph that goes with those guys, right? Um, if you don't know what flannel graph is, you're probably better off. But um, <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Now, these were not their given names, Right, and this is we talked about this a little bit last week. We said their given names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These were Jewish names that gave honor to uh, the true God, Jehovah God. Um, but we talked last week about the fact that the nation of Israel had been taken into captivity. Now they were in Babylonian captivity. Um, and, and so what would happen, and we talked a little bit about this before, is that the Babylonian Empire, when they would, take a, a, when the, when they would conquer a people group in, in that territory, they would go into that territory, they would typically take members of the royal family, uh, specifically because members of the royal family usually were the best educated, they were typically the healthiest, the best fed. They would take those individuals, they would bring them back over to Babylon, they would give them an education, they would get them uh, uh, kind of in, indoctrinated into the customs uh, of their society. And then eventually, after, some, after a period of time had elapsed, they would send them back to their people as sort of like missionaries for the Babylonian culture. The idea was the best thing to do was to get them up to speed with the way things were done in Babylon so that eventually they would just be absorbed into the kingdom of Babylon. That's really the, the thought. So you have Daniel and his three friends. They're among a group of people that have been brought over to Babylon. They're living in the king's palace, and they've kind of got like this full-ride scholarship to Babylon U, you know, and they're learning. They're, they're taking classes. They're learning about the sciences. They're learning about Babylonian culture. Um, now they look different. You know, the, the, they look more like Babylonians because they're trying to get them, you know, their ears are pierced. Now their heads are shaved. They're looking a little bit more like the Babylonian culture. But we talked last week about the first major kind of crisis point that happened when they got to Babylon because they were expected to eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine. And we talked about why that was a problem for them. 
because the king's meat and the king's wine had first been offered to idols before they brought it in for these guys to eat it. Now, the one thing, and we're going to kind of keep talking about that this week, the one thing, if Daniel and his friends knew anything, they knew that the, the reason they were even in captivity in the first place was because their ancestors had gotten all mixed up with idols. So the one thing they were real sure they didn't want to do is get involved with anything having anything to do with idols. So we remember from last week, Daniel made a deal with the guard. They had this sort of vegetables and water kind of diet thing going on, and they ended up working that crisis out. But now we're going to talk today about a little bit more of a difficult uh, crisis and one that I think will help us as we look toward what we're going to do in the future uh, and how our world, how we will continue to be strong for Christ even when our world shifts around us. Okay, But I do need to talk to you for a second about what happened between the story we talked about last week and the story that we're going to talk about this week. So the king of Babylon, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is all happening in modern day Iraq. And you, you might be interested to know, this is just a side point, but Saddam Hussein was actually very interested in Nebuchadnezzar. He actually patterned some elements of his life and reign after Nebuchadnezzar, but that's just a, a historical side point there for you. But um, Nebuchadnezzar was the king. Now, he had a dream. Back then, people set a lot of store uh, on the predictive nature of dreams. And as a matter of fact, sometimes God sent messages that way. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he calls in all of his wise men, um, you know, and, and, and he expects them to interpret the dream. But he knows what you and I know, which is you could give somebody a dream, they could give you 50 different interpretations of it. And sometimes those interpretations are not falsifiable. They could be right as long as they're generic enough. So he wants to make sure he's getting the right interpretation. The way he does that is he says to his guys, first, I want you to tell me the dream, and then I want you to interpret it for me, right? Well, that adds a little bit of an extra degree of difficulty, right? I want you to tell me what I what I dreamed, right? So he calls the guys in. The guy said, there's no way we can do this. We cannot tell you what your dream was. And he says, well, if you can't tell me what the dream is, I'm just going to have you ripped limb from limb. That's Nebuchadnezzar style, right? It's either do what I want, or I'll throw you in a furnace, or I'll send you in, you know, later on his, his successor, I'll send you in the lion's den, or, you know, I'll have you ripped limb from limb. He, you know, he typically was used to getting what he wanted. And he said, I'm going to, you know, I'll have you guys rip limb from limb. And they still couldn't do it, and so he decides he's going to have all his wise men killed, all of them. Which, by the way, Daniel and his three friends, even though they're kind of like wise men in training, it says wise men on their office door, and so they're, one of, they're, they're going to get killed along with everybody else. So when they come to grab Daniel, Daniel prays to God and asks God for the meaning to the dream, and God gives it to him. So he goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him his dream, and then gives him the meaning of it. So here's the way Nebuchadnezzar responds to that, right? And we're looking here in Daniel chapter 2, verse 46. King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him, and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. And the king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel the ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. And at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon. Now, don't read over that too quickly. He just put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as like the local governors over everything that happens within Babylon, right? While Daniel remained in the king's court. So now things have shifted. The world has shifted quite a bit. Now Daniel's driving a BMW. He's living at the palace. His friends are now moving into the governor's mansion in Babylon, and they're in charge of everything. And on top of that, Nebuchadnezzar is really high right now on the God of the Israelites right now. So the first Baptist church of Babylon, man, there's a big spike in attendance. They got no room in the nursery. They've handed out all the gift bags at first impressions. And it is a whole different world for a little while. But you know how cultures are. There's an ebb and flow, you know? There was a shift towards God, but then now really quickly there's a shift away from God. And we're going to talk in a minute about why that was the case. But it's not long before Nebuchadnezzar goes back to worshiping his old gods and he wants everybody else to worship his old gods. But now 
You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now they're in charge of Babylon, but now they're in a very difficult situation because they're working for a guy who worships a different god. And it's very clear from the text, and you'll see this in a minute, it's very clear from the text that Nebuchadnezzar expected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be worshiping as gods. But here's the thing, so far, and this is my conjecture, I can't prove it, but I think so far this was something that wasn't very public. Whether you were worshiping his gods or not was not very public. But Nebuchadnezzar is getting ready to make it very public. And please understand, in matters of faith and in matters of differences, when people, you know, depending on what people worship, eventually, someday, the question will be called. And eventually that was happening. I'll show you how it happened in in, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's time. Verse 1, chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. By the way, it's a very big statue. And set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. By the way, archaeologists believe they found the pedestal of this statue. It's about four miles south of what we would consider to be ancient Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, by the way, that list will follow us all morning long because you'll see it over and over again. That's really because Nebuchadnezzar was very proud of the fact that Babylon had more musical instruments than any other kingdom. So you'll continue to see that list pop up, right? Bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue, and anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. By the way, every once in a while, somebody will ask me, well, what's the business with this furnace? Did, you know, did, did, did Nebuchadnezzar build a furnace just to throw people in he didn't like? No, the furnace was built so that they could build a statue. They needed to create bricks for the statue, and they needed to smelt different metals to make the statue, and so that's what the furnace was there for. And, and, and that brings us to an interesting point. Because you realize Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their job is to be in charge of all the affairs of Babylon from the north to the south, east, west borders. They're supposed to know everything that's going on. They're supposed to be in charge of everything that's going on. They are the governors. So there is absolutely zero way this statue just popped up on them and they were unaware of it. They watched the statue go up. They watched the furnace get built. Before anybody started laying groundwork, before the dirt work was done, before the platform was put together, they saw the furnace get put together. And then brick by brick, they watched the base of the statue go up. And then piece by piece, they watched the statue being built. And I know that in their hearts, they had to know that the day was coming where the question would be called. And I'm not an alarmist. I I hope I'm a realist. But folks, i got to be honest with you. The statue's being built. I mean, as Christians in, in, in the United States at this, at this point in time, I would like us to just be honest with ourselves and recognize as we watch the world scenario, we watch what's playing in front of us, we ought to recognize that the statue is being built. And there had to be something within Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's heart that understood the question was coming up. The time was coming when the question would be called. After all, my hunch is, on top of the fact that they watched the statue being built, my hunch is they were the first one on the invitation list. After all, they were in charge of Babylon. My hunch is they got the really nice gold embossed invitation, right, with the RSVP. And it said, please come to the dedication ceremony of the king's brand new statue. And then just with an asterisk next to the RSVP in typical Nebuchadnezzar style, there's a little asterisk that says, you know, if you can't come, no problem, we'll just throw you into the furnace, right? Uh, So they knew what was coming, right? But here's the deal, and, 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 and I just want to say this, I really don't even probably have time to say this, but my hunch is in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, when he, pictured the, when he pictured the dedication ceremony, and he pictured the music starting to be played, my hunch is he pictured everybody bowing down, and my hunch is he pictured Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as being the first down, right? 
I'm sure he thought maybe there'll be a couple scragglers, maybe there'll be a couple weirdos and, and idiots who will decide just to make a show of the fact they're not going to bow, but that won't be any big deal. They'll toss them in the furnace, and then we'll have a nice, clean ceremony, right? But I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in his mind, I don't think he ever thought that he was going to have an issue with these guys. But there was a problem with that assumption, and that is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood how God felt about what they were being asked to do. I'm going to read you a couple uh, texts, and I didn't give this to the tech team, so I apologize for that. But first of all, I want to read to you Exodus 22 through 6. This is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol or any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Now check this out. How direct is this? You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon the children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have known what I just read to you by memory. They would have known it by memory. They would, have, they, they would have recited the Shema every morning. And we don't know at this point in ancient Israel how much was there, at least Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. But most likely they also knew this part. You must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates be careful don't let your heart be deceived so that you turn away from the lord and serve and worship other gods if you do the lord's anger will burn against you so commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these words of mine tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders teach them to your children talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road and when you're going to bed and when you're getting up this isn't my talk this morning but i hope you'll permit me one quick off ramp here but we are in desperate Need. I mean, desperate. We're in desperate need of a generation of parents who will tell their kids about Jesus Christ. We are in desperate need of a generation who will teach their kids about Jesus Christ. Why did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make a huge difference? Because they grew up in homes where their parents talked to them on a regular basis about God. They taught them what God said. And they understood the importance of God's blessing. And they understood the importance of God's structure and God's boundaries and lines that are just meant never to be crossed. And they got it. Because as the Bible said, they talked to them. That, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's parents would have talked to them about it when they woke up in the morning and when they went to bed and as they were walking along the road and even though as teenagers they were ripped away from their homes and taken to Babylon they knew about the right thing because their parents had told them and we need that you know we we do kids world here and there is man I'll tell you what I'm so thankful my kids get to be a part of kids world is a fantastic kids ministry and you have to know that, that we spend an enormous amount of time during the week engineering that one hour that we get with your kids to make sure that it's the very best that we can do. And we want to make sure that when you're driving to lunch or wherever you're going after you leave the service and you've got them in the car, we want to make sure that when you ask them what is the big idea and what did you learn in church, we want, we want them to know, we want them to be able to tell you about that. It's so important to us. But please understand, we will get probably somewhere between 40 and 50 hours over the course of the entire year with your kid. On average, you will get about 3,000 hours with your kid. It's, 
You have the biggest influence. That's what parents in our generation need to understand. And I'm first in line. I need to get this, that we as parents have the biggest influence on our kids. And that's why God is telling us in this passage, we need to talk about it when our kids are waking up, when you're sitting around the breakfast table or when you're driving them to school, you need to talk about God. When good things are happening, it needs to be, look what God is doing for us. And we go through difficult times, it needs to be, we need to be asking God to help us out. And when we go through consequences, we need to be saying, this is part of the way God has designed the universe is that we need to learn how to do the right thing. And when we experience consequences, that's what happens. It needs to be framed in the idea of God. When, when they go to bed, I mean, when your kids are little, you got to put them to bed. When you put them to bed, talk to them about God. And, and, and the Bible says when you walk along the road, hey, when you're on that six hour road trip and there's not, no conversation going in the car, it's time to talk about God. Well, Jonathan, what would I say? Hey, God is a person. Jesus is a person. Just talk to them about God the same way you would about Aunt Gertrude. Just talk about how good he is, how wonderful he is and what he wants for your life. But for Pete's sake, talk to your kids about God. That's how we'll make a difference in this world. So the dedication ceremony came, right? And you get the program. So, you know, this stuff. I don't know if you've been to these events before, but usually the architect gets up and he talks about how much fun it was to draw the plans, right? And then, and then the builder gets up and he talks about the different challenges they went through putting the building together. Then you have some local dignitaries who are there because they have a title. And they get up and they sort of talk a little bit. And then after that, right, the musicians start to tune up, right? And you look through the program, speech, speech, speech music, right? Now, when I was in college, I went to a Christian college, but they tried to give us a little, you know, extra culture while we were there. So they had these things they called fine arts things, and it would be operatic or, you know, some sort of fantastic musician or musical group they would bring in. And they would eventually, they started putting on the programs where to clap because we had accidentally clapped over some moments we weren't supposed to clap. So it would say, clap here, don't clap here. So I can just imagine the program at this dedication ceremony, right? Bow here or, you know, which would you like, original or extra crispy, you know? And uh, so, you know, at this moment, the music starts to play. And if you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for me, that's where my heart skips a beat. Because you knew this moment was coming. You, you'd like to not think it was coming. You'd like to think that your culture would turn around. You would like to think that people would get it. You would like to think that it would not be such a big deal to people that all you want to do is worship the true God. But you knew this moment was coming, and that's that moment where your heart skips a beat. And when the music starts to play... Well, the Bible tells us that the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race, nation, or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue. When they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, I told you that list would follow us around. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, little jab there, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Now, please understand, that's all it took for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in a fight for their life. But please understand, they were not looking for a fight. And the reason I make that distinction is because as we have this series and we're talking about being legendary and we're talking about living a life that makes a difference in the world and makes an impact, you might be having a little bit of pushback in your spirit and say, Jonathan, I really like this series and I really like the stories, but that's just not me. I'm not oppositional like that. I'm not aggressive like that. I'm never first in line for anything. I'm not confrontational. So it's just not my style. But please understand, being, making a difference for God and being, and, and being somebody who lives off the curb, that, that's not about being aggressive or oppositional. The thing is, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were just being true to who they were. They were just living out their identity. 
and the world around them changed. They didn't go looking for a fight. A fight came to them. We talked last week about the idea of outliers. Dad gave you a, a dictionary uh, definition for outliers. I'm, I'm very much into, into statistics. Um, you know, my college and background is in psychology, and so um, uh, statistics are very helpful for us. They help us make predictive values, determining you know, what is most likely to occur, especially within human behavior, they can be very helpful. Um, but in statistics, and those of you who, in this room who are fans of statistics, you know that the holy grail of, of statistical measurement is something that we call the bell curve, right? And maybe you saw this when you were in school. And the bell curve uh, looks like this. You, you go out and you, get a, you, do, you do some sort of survey or you do some sort of statistical measurement, and you get a lot of data points that are kind of in the middle of the bell curve underneath the big hump. And then and the most are kind of centered at the middle. And then if everything works out the way that we always hope it will, you'll have a few data points start to taper out as it gets to either end of the tail. Um, and, and as long as you get that, you're, as a st statistician, you are happy. You have the joy of the Lord. If you can get a really nice little pattern going on there, we have a lot of data points in the middle and a little on either side, right? But it usually doesn't happen that way, especially in social sciences, which I'm used to. Usually you'll get a couple of really weird answers. And those weird answers, when you plot them on your graph, are sort of just off in la-la land, right? And they make the curve look not quite perfect. It looks not pristine. So we use the term outlier to describe those points that are off in la-la land, which is just our way of dismissing those and say, well, those are just oddball answers. They're weird, and we're not going to pay attention to them because mostly what we're concerned with is the curve. Now, in the affairs of humanity, in this country and in this world, there is a curve of sorts. There is what the average person believes, what the average person thinks, how the average person is going to behave, and how they're going to go about their life, right? There is the curve. Now, there are a few people who are outliers just based on the curve. These are aggressive people. These are oppositional people. These are pot stirrers, right? And that's what you're, if, if you have that pushback in your spirit, that pushback is just to say, I'm not a, a pot stirrer. And thank you for that because the world needs less of those. But a pot stirrer is just a person who could care less about what's right or wrong. More what they care about is just finding a way to be outside the curve. Because the truth is, anytime you live outside the curve, there's drama there and they thrive on that drama. So what they're paying attention to is where everybody else is and there'll be enough outside the curve that they have something to, they have somebody to argue with, right? That's what, not what we're talking about here. When we talk about an outlier, now we're kind of moving out of the world of statistics and we're talking more about being, being an outlier for God. We're talking about somebody who's willing to plot their point on the graph based off of what is right or based off of what is wrong or based off of what they know to be true about themselves or what they know to be true about God, regardless of where the curve is. No matter what the average person thinks, no matter what the average person does or how they behave, they make a decision based off of what they believe to be absolute truth. So there are going to be some areas in your life, if you're an outlier for God, there's going to be some areas in your life where you're going to do what you believe is right. And there's going to be a lot of people on board with that because maybe in that area, there's you know, a whole lot of people who would go along with you and believe that's true. But if you are a true outlier for God, there are going to be several areas of your life, and especially in this culture, there are going to be a lot of areas of your life where if you do the right thing, you're going to look around and there aren't going to be a whole lot of people around you. The bell curve, it moves. And by the way, that's, by the, way that's, that's the most important thing I can tell you all morning long. It's the dirty little secret of the bell curve, and that is that the bell curve moves, and I can prove that to you, right? So you just take a list of the top 20 moral issues affecting our, our society today, uh, and we'll, we'll take moral issues where we could ask the question, is it right or is it wrong, scale of 1 to 10. 1 is it's very wrong, 10 is it's completely acceptable. If you were to go and ask people 100 years ago, these top 20 issues, is it right or is it wrong? You're going to just plot their responses. And then I just would encourage you to just push it forward a decade at a time. And you will watch that curve just creep across the screen, right? Because the curve moves. Now, this is what's so frightening. 
We have a society of individuals who are making their decisions about how they're going to live their life and what they're going to do and, 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 and what they believe is right or wrong based off of a curve that is moving. That ought to be a little bit concerning. The curve moves. And by the way, the curve, or the reason people stay underneath the curve, at least this is my, my impression, is that it seems like it promises safety. It's like there's safety uh, in numbers. As a matter of fact, we even have a language for this. We, we talk about people in terms of the curve. We describe ourselves in terms of the curve, but we'll say so-and-so is a right winger, or so-and-so is very left, or we'll say this person is moderate. And all that is, we're just describing people in terms of where they sit in the average, where they sit in the curve. But the curve seems to offer safety as long as you can be where everybody else is. And as a matter of fact, I had a perfect illustration of this, and I kind of kept it because I knew we were going to have this talk. I was in San Diego the other day. I was going to a conference, and the hotel I was at was just right by the airport. So when I rented my car, it, wasn't a, it was not a long drive to get to the, air, to, the, to the hotel. So I stayed there, but the next morning I had to go to where the conference was, and I went and talked to the concierge, and I said, here's where I need to go. And he said, well, you're going to have to drive on the highway to get there. He said, have you ever driven on the highway in San Diego? I said, no. He said, where are you from? I said, Kansas. And he said, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> said, well, it's a little different here. He said, now there is the speed limit here in, in San Diego. He's like, and then there's the flow of traffic. And, and he's like, those two are very different, right? And so he said, you can drive the speed limit, but you might not arrive alive, right? So he said, you probably want to just go with the flow of traffic. And I said, well, now how is that? How is everybody breaking the speed limit? And this is what he said. He said, they can't pull everybody over. And I am here to tell you, we are living in a day and time where our society thinks God works that way. We think that God won't pull everybody over as long as we're living within the average, as long as we look around and lots of people are doing what we're doing, it must be okay because after all, God can't pull everybody over and I just want to say, yes, he can, he's God. He can pull anybody over he wants to. God's concerned with the speed limit. When God sets a boundary, when God says, this is right, this is wrong, and this is how we need to live our lives, he's not just playing around. He's, he means it. It's for real. He's doing it because he wants what's best for us, but he means business. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood when they got that printed invitation. And it said, when the music plays, you have to bow down. They said, uh uh-uh, not us, because we know that when God sets a pick line, he's serious. And God can pull us over, and we don't want that. Don't be fooled by the fact there, there, there is a religion of the bell curve. There's a first church of the bell curve. It has its own mortal sins and its misdemeanor transgressions. It has its own pastors and missionaries, its own sacred sites and sacred texts. It has its own heaven of public acceptance and its own hell of rejection and punishment. And Nebuchadnezzar just decided to punctuate that hell by adding a furnace in there with 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit of blazing charcoal that he was saying, if you don't do what I tell you to do, I'm going to throw you in there. But the thing about it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that was not even the big issue for them. The big issue for them is, who am I? See, we have a generation of people that are forgetting that the most important question is, who, who are you? What is your standards? What do you stand for? What do you live for? What would you never do? What would you, what would you choose to do if somebody told you you couldn't do it? That's your identity, and nobody ought to be able to take that away from you no matter what they threaten you with. Just think about this. I want you to imagine the picture. Everybody bowing down to the statue. And by, by the way, when you, when you read about this bowing down to the statue, this is not like, you know, at the school dance where you bow and she curtsies, you know. It's not like that, right? We're talking about a full-on bow to the ground. Your head is touching the dirt, derriere up in the sky. You're worshiping this God 
with you know completely on the ground. So the, there's a there's a carpet of people completely down on the ground, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing up straight. And I'm saying that I want you to get that picture in your mind because I'm saying those moments are coming. Those moments of awkwardness where you do the right thing and you look around and nobody else is doing what you're doing. It'll be a gut check moment. It'll be a gut check where you have to ask yourself, am I doing the right thing? Because this looks a little weird. But if you are, I'm just saying, keep standing up. Because that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. So we, we move on. I told you that... Um, the tattletales came in. They told King Nebuchadnezzar about what happened. Daniel 13, Daniel 3.13. Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And when they were, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one... Now read this and think about how crazy this is. I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made. When you hear the sound of the musical instruments, think about this. Nebuchadnezzar is offering to bring all these union musicians in on double time to have them play again just for these three guys. Only for these three guys so that they will bow down so that everybody can finally get along and move on and be happy. It's weird, but it's familiar. It's familiar. I mean, it sounds a lot like recent stories, people getting called into offices and asked, don't you know that you can't do that? Don't you know that that's unconstitutional? Don't you know that that violates our freedom of religion? Which, by the way, Reagan had it right. It's not freedom of religion. It's, not, it's, not, it's freedom of religion, not freedom from religion. When our forefathers wanted to give us the free exercise of religion, they weren't just thinking about that within the confines of the walls of our homes or within the confines of the walls of, of the buildings where you worship corporately like this. They expected you to put your faith in your briefcase and take it to work with you during the week and to talk to your friends about it and to talk to people that you were going to influence about it. And that didn't matter. There were no such things back then as secular jobs and non-secular jobs. It was your faith and you lived your faith out. That's what they expected. But now we're having these weird little discussions like, hey, you're welcome to work here. Just take the cross down. I mean, you're welcome to be here. Just take down the Ten Commandments and quit praying in public. I mean, you're welcome to play football, but for Pete's sake, take that cross and turn it into a plus sign. I cannot imagine anything more crazy. Of course you can pray, but please make sure you don't mention Jesus. And absolutely you can have moral standards. Just don't bring them to your secular job because you might discriminate against someone. I just feel like we're, we're living in a crazy time because I think why on earth, you know, why wouldn't you just go ahead if you're, if you're going to be like this and you're going to set a rule and say you can't, you can't worship God the way that you need to worship God, you can't worship the true God, then why don't you just mete out punishment? Why all of the extra energy? I mean, I read the story that dad mentioned last week about take the cross in your helmet and turn it into a plus sign. Why all the extra leverage and energy to, to f try to find a way to, to conform what someone's doing to the, to the average? But that's the thing. That's the dirty little secret about the bell curve is that it it is better when, 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 when you get called in by the officials and the pastors of the church of the bell curve and they want you to conform, it would be better for them to get you to conform than to punish you for not conforming. Because getting you inside the bell curve makes their life easier because your very existence outside the bell curve is disturbing for them. And I'll tell you why. Check this out. In, uh, uh, in the verse we were just reading, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to give you another chance. But then he says, if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue from my power? Literally in the original language, he said, what God is there that can rescue you from me? Right Now think about the oxymoronic nature of what's happening here. He's called these guys in because they will not bow down and worship his big, powerful God. And now he's saying, if you don't do what I tell you to do, then I'm going to throw you into the furnace. And what God is there in the universe who can protect you from me? 
See, here's the thing about the bell curve, and I'm telling you, this is so true. In the religion of the bell curve, there is room for the idea of God, but there is not really room for a real God. Because if there was a real God, the bell curve wouldn't matter anymore. If there was a God who could rescue you from difficulty, if there was a God who had standards and he meant business, if there was a God who wanted the best for you, then what would it matter where the averages are? What would it matter where the bell curve is? And there were three guys in the entire room who got that, but it made, it made Nebuchadnezzar very upset and he just could not get it. He's saying, who's going to save you if I do that? In Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves to you. By the way, there's an emphasis in there. In the original language, there's an emphasis on the word we. It took me a little while to get my mind around that this week. It is as though they said, if we try to put the emphasis on the, on the right syllable, it's like they said, we don't need to defend ourselves to you. It's almost as though they're saying, this fight is not between us and you. You think we're here, we need to give you some sort of defense, but this isn't between us and you. There's a much bigger player in the room. We take God with us everywhere we go, and God is in the room with us right now. And so if you want to have a discussion, you might want to have a discussion with him, but he's told us we can't do this, and we're just going to go along with it, so we don't need to defend ourselves to you. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to free a lot of people in this room in the name of Jesus from two or three hours of your week that's getting just sucked out of your life right now because you're going online and you're replying to things that people are saying on Facebook and you're replying on blogs and you're replying to what somebody says because you, you read a comment that somebody says and it gets you all stirred up and you get all upset because you think how could they possibly say something like that and so you start typing three or four really well-written paragraphs to go against what they just said right but I want to tell you and please understand this is not me being a pain but I want to tell you two things number one you can put a lot of energy into writing that kind of literature and your readership is probably a little less than you think <laughs> truly and the second thing is this God has never called us to be oppositional that is not our job. You say, well, Jonathan, doesn't God say we're supposed to be ready to give an answer? Yeah, be ready to give an answer. You might have to give an answer. At some point, someone may come and ask you, or, or there might be a moment that really calls for it. But God never sent us out there to be the, the caped crusaders to make sure that we set everybody straight. That's not our job. And so what you've got is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, you don't get it. We don't have to give ourselves a defense for you. And then they said, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. And he will rescue us from your power. But even if he doesn't, and that deserves a whole sermon on it in, in itself, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. See, there is a moment when it is appropriate to say what you will never do. There is a moment when it is appropriate to let people know who are trying to leverage pressure on you to conform, to get into the curve, to go along, to get along. There is a moment when it is appropriate to say that's just never going to happen. So there's a couple lessons I want, to take, I, want, I want us to take away from this story and then we'll be done. Here's the first one. You should never join the crowd simply because the crowd is doing what the crowd is doing. I would really like for my kids to learn that. I, I, but frankly, as much as my kids need to learn it, I need to learn it. You should never join the crowd simply because the crowd is doing what the crowd is doing. Right? <clears throat> you know, in, in the traditional church world, for a long time, we used to describe people in terms of being saved or being lost. Now, the concept was, was good. We were talking about the fact there are people who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and there are people who at this point don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's good. But the term lost, you, you know, I, I will tell you what, I've met some saved people who were lost. Because they were living under the bell curve. And so they might have a relationship with Jesus. But where they are going in life is not very clear. And this is what we need to teach our kids. The bell curve is there because the average person is doing what the average person is doing. But the average person is doing what the average person is doing in order to be underneath the bell curve. That is the definition of lost. 
The crowd is following the crowd. So the question is going to be, what are you, you going to do because it's the right thing? What are you going to do because it's what you should do? Secondly, you should never join the crowd because you're threatened to do so. Never, 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 never. You should never join the crowd because somebody says, I'm going to do this to you if you don't. You know, growing up, I, I tended to be a little nerdy and geeky. Well, okay, I still do, but... <clears throat> Every once in a while, I get picked on by bigger kids. But you know, the funny thing is, I never worried too much about it because I always knew my dad was bigger than the kid who was picking on me. And for Pete's sake, if there's one thing I wish we could get through our heads in, in Christianity in 21st century America, because sometimes it's, we, we almost come across as being weak, like, oh my goodness, we don't know what's going to happen. If America really turns on us, then people start really getting aggressive towards Christ followers. What are we going to do? I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll be who we are, and we'll continue to follow Jesus Christ because our dad is bigger than anybody who picks on us. End of, end of story. That's what we'll do. So Nebuchadnezzar, in verse 19, was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage, and he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. And then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Well, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flames of the furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. Come here. Now, you want to think about the craziness of this story. I mean, here you've got what we believe to be a Christophany. So we believe we have pre-incarnate Christ now in this furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's bigger than that. You think about this. The, 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 the shape of the furnace was kind of like an old milk bottle type shape. So there's a taper at the top. That's where they would put the metal in. Down on the bottom is the chamber where there would be the fuel. It was a charcoal-based charcoal flame. They would put the fuel and the big bellows and so forth. So they tied them up and put them down through the top where the metal would get poured in and let them fall, bam, all the way down to the bottom. That was the plan. And all of a sudden, though, they look around. Here's these guys. They're, you know, they, were, they were bound up all over the place. Now they're walking around. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king who decided to throw them in, the guy who wanted him to worship his God, is the person who we have recorded in the Bible telling us that what we have here is a Christophany, walking around in the flames with the others. Now, here's what I want to get. I'm, I'm, I'm running into overtime here, but here's what I want to get. It, always doesn't, it doesn't always happen this way, right? We have tons of stories over the past centuries of individuals who were given a choice either to say that they did not believe in Christ or to renounce Christ or to die who did lose their life for making that statement, the martyrs, right? So in this case, we have a different outcome. And God must be wanting to teach us something here. Especially for God to go to the trouble to send Christ into the fire with these guys. There must be some lessons that God wants us to take away. And I just want to give you three lessons that I'm hoping to take away from this story and then we'll be done for the day. Here's the first one. And that is that doing the right thing will not keep you out of the fire. I really, really wish it would. It would seem appropriate. It would seem like, it, it would seem like the appropriate thing is that if you would do the right thing, if you would follow God, that everything would go perfect. And there are certainly a lot of people who teach that. There are certainly a lot of people who teach that as long as you follow God and you do it all right, everything will go well for you in life. That's just not the message of the Bible that I read. And what I'm reading is that sometimes, especially when culture turns its back on God, sometimes we are more likely to face the fire because we're doing the right thing. But secondly, we can learn that when you take a stand for God, 
God will go through the fire with you. And I got to be honest with you. You know, here at New Spring, we're very real. And so I try to stay away from cliches and I try to stay away from church speak as much as I can. So it was difficult for me to type a phrase like God will go through the fire with you because I've grown up hearing phrases like that. But folks, I cannot, I cannot give you a phrase short of the fact that God will go through the fire with you when that is exactly the image that God has given us here. That is exactly what he showed us. So what, that take, what I take away from that, and I will probably need to know this in my generation. My kids will probably need to know this in, in their generation. I hope not, but we need to know this, that when you take a stand for God, you will never stand without him. He will always stand beside you. Because there are going to be a time when your kids will end up having to stand for God and all their friends aren't going to stand with them and they're going to feel alone. And we need to help our kids understand that when they take a stand for Jesus Christ, that God will be right there next to them and God will go through whatever they go through because they're willing to stand up for the right thing. And then finally, and this is the last, through God's strength, you are indestructible. I mean, you think about this. They went into that fire. Enough fire to to kill the soldiers that threw them in. And the only thing that burned on them, I mean, you know, not, they said not a hair on their head was singed. Their clothes were still intact. The only thing that burned off of them were the ropes they used to tie them up with. I think that's an important image to be aware of. I mean, that's why we can sing a song like, I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side because here's the thing. In Matthew, Jesus said, don't be afraid of anybody here on earth because they cannot get to the most important part of you. He said, they can kill your body, but they can't do anything with your soul. The most important part of you, the real you on the inside, God said, they cannot touch it. They can't get to it. And then on the second part of the verse, he said, do be afraid of God who has the ability to throw both your body and soul into hell. Now, this is important to think about this. The first half of that verse is for the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's of this world, where God is saying to them, just so you know, no matter what they do to you, they can do anything, they can threaten you with the full gamut of anything that's within their abilities to do, but they cannot touch your soul. But to the Nebuchadnezzars of this world, God was saying, but you probably should be afraid of the God who can throw both your body and soul into hell. If you think about that, I mean, I don't, I don't know where this, where this reaches you this week. But because I do tend to get that little sick feeling in the pit of my stomach when I see things about where this world is going, it's really easy for me to get discouraged but I need, I need a huge dose of this this morning. I need a huge dose of a God that says, there is nobody on this earth that can touch you. Go on and live your life. Find your identity and be that person. Live for God and make a difference. Thank you so much for being here this morning.